The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Reading again from Acts chapter 2, 36 through 38. This is the word of the Lord. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this baptism that you've given us, this baptism into your son, Jesus, into discipleship with him, uh, from the death of the old man to life of the new man, united with Christ. Lord, as we pour through your scriptures this morning, I just pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see how you would have us be obedient um, to this act of baptism. We give this time to you now. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you didn't notice, and you may not have because uh, they're all the way here up the front, we've got all of the youth with us, and it is awesome to see your uh, young, shining faces up here. Uh, the elders have asked the youth to be a part of uh, our, our service this morning because of this topic of baptism. And I don't know if it's because of what we read in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, where it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall de- lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So maybe this is just to, to get some leadership up here at the front of the church, so it's wonderful to see you guys. Um, as we have our topic of baptism this morning, I thought maybe we should start with a, a joke about baptism. It's all the groans. I haven't even got to the punchline. And a man stumbled across a Pentecostal baptismal service on a Sunday afternoon down by the river. He proceeded to walk down into the water and stand next to the preacher. And the preacher asked the man, Mister, are you ready to find Jesus? The man said, Yes, I am. The minister then immersed the man under the water and pulls him right back up. And the preacher asked him, Have you found Jesus? The man said, no, I didn't. The preacher then dunks him under for quite a bit longer, brings him up and says, now, brother, have you found Jesus? The man replied, no, I did not. The preacher, in disgust, holds the man under the water for at least 30 seconds or more this time, brings him back up out of the water and says in a harsh tone, man, have you found Jesus? The man wipes his eyes and says to the preacher, Are you sure this is where he fell in? (laughs) As Lars mentioned two weeks ago, as the opportunities present themselves in the book of 1 Corinthians, we'll be doing a deeper dive this morning on baptism, the Lord's Lord's table at another date, and church leadership uh, in the future after that as well. These are important topics for the life of the church, and we want to kind of slow down and take a moment to really reflect upon these things. They, they matter to the life of the church. And as we think about 1 Corinthians, faithful in the fire, but also 
a book written to a church that was kind of working through what I'll call kind of church issues. So I want to give you a heads up. This sermon might feel a little bit more like a classroom or a teaching session than maybe a typical sermon, and that's all right. It's appropriate to use these opportunities to really go deeper on on specific and important doctrines that affect the life of the church. We need to use these opportunities to renew our minds and to be transformed through the preaching of God's Word. And so today, in the heels of last week's passage, we're going to look at baptism. Now, recall last week in Corinth, uh, the church of Corinth was divided. They, They were aligning themselves under different apostles. I'm Apollos, and I am with Cephas, and and I'm with Jesus. But instead, there is only one man that they should be aligned under, and of course, that is Jesus. And so Paul sought to correct that by emphasizing the unity of the church under the lordship of Jesus. And of course, a critical aspect of submission to Jesus is baptism. Now, because you won't find a passage where the subject is baptism itself, what we're going to try to do is build a picture of baptism using a number of passages throughout the New Testament Mostly in Acts. But first, as we look at our outline this morning, first we need to know what is baptism and what is it not. So that's going to be our first point. And I'm going to kind of take us through a jet tour, so to speak, of the the different kind of um, primary passages in Acts that talk about baptism. And we're going to look through those. And then at the end, you see, and I've given you you six um, uh, numbers there. We're going to highlight six observations about what baptism is and what it is not. And then we're going to look at why. Why should we baptize? I think there's probably an obvious answer to that. But there's even more that we can unpack as it relates to why we should be baptized. And then lastly, we're going to look at who. Who should be baptized? So let's first look at what is baptism. So when you look at the scriptures, the first baptism that's actually recorded uh, is John's baptism. Um, But before that, the the Jews were already practicing baptism. They they used it as an initiation rite for Gentiles, uh, people who were not Jews who wanted to convert to Judaism. Um, So they would go down into the water, they would come back up, and it it symbolized a cleansing of sort of their old Gentile ways and the acceptance of the yoke and the mantle of the Torah, the, the, the law of the Old Testament. So it was really a part of Jewish life. It wasn't new. The, the nature of this baptism was different than anything that uh, was different than what John practiced. It was really just a ceremony. It was a ceremonial deal. It was a ritual deal. Um, and not really associated with inward change. And so even though the Jews had some familiarity with baptism, when John showed up and started doing what he did, it made a really big splash. Thank you. So John baptized as well, but it wasn't for Gentile people converting to Judaism. It was for Jews who wanted to repent and seek forgiveness. Mark chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then in Luke chapter 3, John, in response to a question about uh, what do we need to do? John, what do we need to do? John expands and he he talks to them and says, this is what repentance looks like. He says, whoever has two two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, 
collect no more than what you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. So what we see is that John's baptism is not this ritual cleansing that the Jews had previously practiced. What we see is there's actually an ethical and moral dimension to his baptism. It was about a desire for forgiveness. People came to him in repentance for their sins. But remember, John's baptism was not an end unto itself. It was part of his mission to point to Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God. John's baptism pointed to a future baptism that was more than an outward expression of repentance, but one of inward renewal. Inward renewal. In Matthew 3.11, John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John was in many ways the leading indicator of Jesus, the one who went before. And so it was no different with baptism. He laid down the foundation for what baptism is, but it's not the same type of baptism that we practice today. He moved it, though, from an act of ceremonial purification that the Jews practiced to one that was related to repentance and inward change. Now, again, his baptism wasn't meant to be a model for our church today. Okay, what we find in Acts, however, is the model. So we're going to do this jet tour now. There's six passages. We're going to start in Acts 2, and we're going to look at what Paul uh, read. So if you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. And um, just as kind of um, background here, uh, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fell on the Jews in Jerusalem. They've spoken in tongues, and now Peter stands up and preaches the gospel to them. And they get to the end of it, and, and Reed already read it for us, but I'll just read it again. He gets to the end of his sermon, and, and they respond by saying, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And he answers, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to see here that there are a number of things kind of connected that are all kind of happening in or around the same time. There's repentance. There's belief. There's baptism. There's forgiveness of sins. There's the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are all related to one another. We're going to see that as a theme throughout our, our passages that we look at. Let's, we're, we're moving quick. We're going to the next one here. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we're going to look at verse 12. But again, just for context, this is Philip preaching to the Samaritans. The gospel has come. If you recall, Jesus' command to, to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're in Samaria already in Acts chapter 8. So Philip's preaching to the Samaritans. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women. So the, Samar just the simple point here is the Samaritans believed and then they were baptized. Stay in Acts chapter 8 with me and let's go and look at the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. 
So the Ethiopian eunuch is on on his way. He's reading Isaiah. He comes across Philip and he says, help me understand. I don't understand these scriptures. Help me understand. So Philip opens the scriptures to him. And presumably from the beginning of Genesis through the end of what at that time was the Old Testament, lays out for this eunuch, this Ethiopian man, what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And so in verses 35 through 38, we read, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and then the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. So there's two things I want you to see here. First, baptism is part of the normal experience of conversion. As Philip shares with the eunuch, evidently he shares that part of of, of conversion, part of faith and repentance in Christ is also being baptized. Because the Ethiopian, when he's done sharing, the Ethiopian eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So that's the first observation. And the second is this. Luke records that the Ethiopian eunuch came up out of the water. And that tells us that he was immersed. So let's go to Acts chapter 10 for our next passage. Acts chapter 10, just a couple of chapters away. Now this whole chapter of of Acts chapter 10 is really the story of the gospel coming to the Gentiles. There's a couple of different things going on here. Uh, Peter has a vision of the sheet. While he's praying, he sees the vision of the sheet lowered by its four corners with all of the animals on it. And uh, God says, kill and eat. All of this is clean. He sees that three times. While that's happening... People from Cornelius come to him and say, hey, our master Cornelius, who, by the way, was a Roman centurion, a Gentile, he wants to meet you. So Peter, the next day, goes back with these gentlemen to see Cornelius. And Cornelius says, say what you need to say. And Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius. He goes and he preaches the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he concludes his message in verse 43. Everyone who believes in him, that is Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then the Holy Spirit falls on these people, who are all Gentiles, by the way, confirmation of their true belief. And as a result, Peter's first response in verse 47 is this. In verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And again, I just want you to see, here's the connection between belief, forgiveness, and receipt of the Holy Spirit in baptism. All of these things are all kind of part of a complex, if you will, part of a, a process. Let's go to Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer and his household. Two more episodes here, Acts 16, and then we'll go to 19. the Philippian jailer in his household. And I'm going to start in verse 30, but just as some background before verse 30. Just remember Paul and Silas were in prison for kind of riling up the city. And um, it's midnight, and um, instead of dozing off, this is amazing, instead of these men trying to sleep, they're singing and praying, giving praises to God. 
when an earthquake strikes, the doors of the prison fly open and their shackles fall off of their hands. And the, the, uh, the jailer, of course, thinks he runs in thinking everybody will have left. Of course they're not going to say. And he actually prepares to kill himself. But Paul stops him. Don't kill yourself. We're still here. We haven't gone anywhere. So at this amazing turn of events, the jailer says in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. I just want you to note here how Peter says, Believe and you will be saved. And after that, they spoke the word of the Lord to them, and Cornelius and his family were baptized. All right, this is our last episode, Acts chapter 19, and then we're going to look at our six observations. But just real quickly, Acts chapter 19, this is in Ephesians, uh, Ephesus, excuse me, this is in Ephesus, and Paul meets some disciples, but these disciples weren't really yet disciples of Jesus, as we'll see. So I'm just going to read for you from verse 2 through 6. And this is Paul speaking. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So I just want you to note the contrast, which we've already made, but just note again the contrast between John's baptism and baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. John's baptism was for repentance, but baptism into Jesus' name is more than that. It's more than that. It certainly includes repentance, but it also includes submission and belief in Jesus and allegiance with him or to him as Lord. So let's look at our six observations about baptism. So I've given you six um, kind of numbers in your outline. Feel free to fill these in if you'd like. Our first observation is this. In Acts, repentance, belief, baptism, forgiveness of sins are all interrelated. See, you don't see Luke, as you go through these scriptures, you don't see Luke making careful distinctions about the timing of these things as it relates to salvation. Instead, what you see is that repentance, faith, and baptism are all interconnected. They all lead to the forgiveness of sins. There is not the repentance way and the belief way and the baptism way. Acts uses each term as a way to kind of capture all three. I like to think about the, the kind of the conversion salvation experience like getting married. You know, there are many things that happen to you, so to speak, or that you do on the day that you get married. Um, you exchange rings. You say, I do. The pastor pronounces you married. Afterwards, you sign a certificate that says, yes, we're, we're married in, in the eyes of the, uh, the government. And then uh, you consummate the marriage that evening. And so, if I asked you, at which point were you married, how would you answer that? Was it the moment you exchanged rings? Was it when you said, I do? 
Was it when the pastor said you're married? Was it when you signed the certificate? Or was it later that evening? The point is that all of these are interrelated and are integral parts of becoming married. And you can't separate them from each other. In Acts, one becomes a Christian through all these means, not at the moment of repentance or belief or confession of sin or baptism. It all is a part of a a process. It's all part together. That's our first observation. The second observation is this. Baptism involves the believer, the church, and God. The believer, the church, and God. So the believer, their part is what? To actively choose to be baptized. You see this in every instance in the New Testament. There's no clear instance of someone being baptized without knowing or understanding what they are doing. So the church also participates in the baptism of the believer. There's no such thing as auto-baptism, as baptizing yourself. And that's for good reason, right? The Christian life, we, we live together as a community, right? We uphold one another. We exhort one another. We encourage one another. We sing songs and hymns together. And so it makes sense that in baptism, the church would be involved as well. And then last and most important participant, of course, is God. God is the one who saves. He saves us through Jesus. And our personal personal identification with Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection through faith is what is symbolized in baptism. So that's point or observation two. Baptism involves the believer, the church, and God. Our third observation is that baptism is by immersion. Now, I'll tell you that this is an area where people disagree, uh, but what we see in the scriptures here at Orchard, what the elders see, is that, uh, that baptism is by immersion. So first off, the Greek word, part of, I'll try to give you sort of why we have come to that conclusion, certainly from what we've read. Uh, but first off, the, the Greek word for baptism is baptizo, which translated is immerse. Number two, John's baptism was by immersion. Now, as we've already pointed out, there are differences between John's baptism and the baptism that, uh, in Jesus' name. Okay, They're not the same baptism, but we have no evidence that the mode of that baptism changed. Number three, the Ethiopian eunuch. As we've already seen, the Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water and came up out of the water. If, If pouring or sprinkling was the way that he was baptized, there would have been no reason for him to say, look, here's water. I mean, certainly he would have had some drinking water with him. And if that was all that was required or expected of baptism, then that's all that would have been needed. And then just lastly, nowhere in Acts is the water brought to the believer. In every instance, it's the believer that goes to the water. So immersion was the mode of baptism in the New Testament. But as we know, sprinkling or pouring is a a form of of baptism today. So, So how should we think about this? How should we think about sprinkling? Well, here's... Um, one idea, it's likely that sprinkling came about as a matter of convenience. Now, it's hard to imagine this because we have running water. We can bring in a cow trough and fill it up, and that's pretty easy for us, right? But imagine if we had this cow trough up here, and we had to walk a half mile to the creek to fill it up every time. We probably wouldn't do that, right? As a matter of convenience, we'd say, let's just pour water. Um, and 
So, so I think that's kind of, a, as much as anything, uh, part of the reason. So, you know, we don't have those limitations. Um, when it's cold outside, the water's still warm in here. We don't have to worry about a frozen pond or a frozen creek or a frozen river like they might have in other places. And so, you know, we think that the, the method that's uh, most likely practiced in the Old or excuse me, New Testament was immersion, and so that's the practice that we should follow as well. Now, just one note on that real quickly. That means if you were sprinkled or poured upon, that doesn't mean that your baptism was invalid. We just think that the model of baptism that's closer to the New Testament is immersion. Number four observation, baptism is a matter of obedience. Baptism is a matter of obedience. And this is just a really short point, but I think it's going to be really important for our application later as we talk about why and who. In all these instances in Acts, we see that in every case, believers are the ones who are baptized. It's not a matter of question or position as an option for them. It's not like, hey, would you like to be baptized? No, it's repent and be baptized. That's the message. When one repents, confesses, and believes, they are baptized. It's it's a matter of obedience. Observation number five, baptism alone does not save. In every instance, we see that only believers, those who have repented and confessed and believed, are then baptized. So baptism, let's just make sure we're perfectly clear on this, baptism does not save you. It is by grace through faith in Christ that saves you. Baptism is the outward expression or manifestation of what has happened to you inwardly in your unification, your your identity with Christ. So there's no special grace or work of God that is done in the act of baptism. And then our last observation from Acts is that baptism is not for infants. Now, just a preliminary note here that many good Christians disagree on this point. And we want to be charitable in our disagreement. And I want to say that this disagreement isn't like Republican and Democrat who can't see eye to eye on anything. And it's not like, it's not even like two Republicans who are arguing over whether or not there should be a tax cut. This is like two Republicans who both agree there should be a tax cut. They're just not sure how much and for whom. So that's the kind of disagreement we're talking about. So now that said, it seems clear from the New Testament that baptism is for believers and not for infants. Baptism is not like circumcision of the Old Covenant, where the symbol of entering into the people of God was performed on every infant male. In every instance in Acts, it is clear that a personal response came before baptism. People were baptized after they repented and believed. And it goes without saying, but infants and very young children are not able to repent or to exercise faith in a meaningful way. And so we believe that baptism is not appropriate for them. All right, so that, that concludes our, our observations on baptism. I want to talk about why we baptize and who should be baptized. The short answer to why we, we, want, why we uh, baptize, the short answer is that we need to be obedient from, to Jesus. Right in his great commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says part of becoming his disciple 
is being baptized. But there's more to unpack here. Jesus says, make disciples and baptize them. But, but what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus? So I went out to gotquestions.org, which is actually a very reliable resource. I recommend it to all of you. It says the Greek term for disciple in the New Testament is mathetes, which means more than just student or learner. A disciple is a follower, someone who adheres completely to the teachings of another, making them his rule of life and conduct. It's interesting to note, Jesus used the term disciple, but he actually never used the term Christian. The word disciple is found 269 times in the New Testament, but Christian is found three times in the New Testament. And when Christian is used, it was used to refer to people who were disciples of Jesus. So becoming a disciple, a follower of Jesus, this is what it means to be a real Christian. The two are the same. It's more than just belief. It's trust and submission to Jesus as Lord. Paul makes mention of this idea of putting off your old self and putting on who you are in Christ throughout his letters to the New Testament churches. So Ephesians Chapter 4, 22 through 24 actually is one of the, there's a number of places where he says it, but this is one of the more well-known, and I'll just read it for you. He says this, we put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and is to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. These verses capture what it means to be a disciple. When we put off our old self, this is important. When we put off our old self, we die to governing ourselves. We die to governing our own life. We die to acting as if we are in charge. A Christian sees that the old life was full of sin and that these sins are a result of of deceitful desires, as Paul says. And that in our old self, we are thoroughly corrupted by sin. The disciple sees this kind of radical, far-reaching nature of sin and the need to completely start over with a fresh start and says to God, I surrender all. This is what Paul means when he says we have put off the old man. But here's the thing. That's just one half of discipleship. Putting off is not enough. The saying goes that nature hates a void, hates an emptiness. And nature's going to do anything it can to to fill that emptiness with something. And this is true with our, our spiritual lives as well. Clearing out the sin wouldn't be enough. It would only leave a void which would be filled again by more sin. And so a disciple of Christ doesn't just put off the old man, they put on the new created in Christ. Paul says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is what it means to be a disciple, to stop living for yourself and to live for Christ in accordance with His ways. Now, I want to share a story that I think illustrates this well. What is, when you ask the question, what does it look like? What does it look like to, be a, to die to self and to be a disciple of Jesus? It's a story about a missionary in South Asia. She and her team had witnessed to a gathering of women 
The next day, the missionary asked who had believed in Jesus, and one woman stood. During the lunch break, she met with the woman and found out that she had decided to add Jesus to the list of gods that she worshipped and not to accept him as the one and only God. The missionary gathered all the women together to clear the confusion, showing them from Scripture that we shall have no other gods before God. And when we believe in Jesus, he covers all our sin. He is enough. He's all that we need. She explained that in order to accept Jesus, we have to reject all other gods. Well, at this point, tears formed in the woman's eyes. She explained that her son was deathly ill, and she could not reject her gods because she promised them that she would do three acts of worship if they would save her son. She said that she had one, just one more act of worship to do and asked if this third act could be done, and then, then she would follow Jesus. After the translator explained more, the woman asked if she could reject her gods, but, but maybe a family member, maybe a family member could do that last act of worship. She was terrified for her son's life. This missionary's team shared the story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man, and they explained to the woman that God has the power to not only forgive sins, but also to heal. And she can trust him, and that she could trust him. And they heard alongside the woman, and they weeped with her. And then they saw God's power at work in her heart. At the end of the conversation, she said, even if it means my son's life, I reject those gods, and I follow Jesus. This is what it means. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to put off the old person and put on the new. This woman decided that no matter the cost, Jesus was worth it, that she would die to her old self. She would die to those gods, the promises that she had made to them, and the hope that she had that they would heal her son somehow. She died to that and put her faith in Jesus. Now, most of us will never have to see that type of test, but a disciple must follow Jesus in obedience and be, and be baptized. So believers are baptized because Jesus' command, and they are baptized as part of being his disciple. And lastly, we baptize as a symbol of the deepest of spiritual truths. A believer is actually unified with Christ. Let's look at Romans, chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. It's a great chapter about our identity in Christ and about the change that has taken place in our life. And it actually has a lot to do with baptism, a lot to do with baptism. Let's read verses 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the reality for the disciple of Christ. A change outside of our doing and beyond our ability has taken place. We have been unified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It's just like when you were born. You had no choice you had no choice in the matter. I'm sure if you had a choice, you would have voted yes. But you didn't have a choice. You were born. It happened to you. 
In the same way Jesus says, we must be born again. A change must take place in our hearts that we can't manufacture. We can't make it take place. It is a change that happens to us. We are born again into unity with Christ. And as a result, the fundamental reality of our lives is completely changed. We are no longer the old man. We may hear the call of sin and we may relent, but we can't return. We mustn't return. We've literally been picked up and moved from from one reality to another. The bigness of this change, if you'll allow me that, the bigness of this change deserves an outward sign that is in keeping with it. And this is why we baptize by immersion. Think about it. Going under the water signifies our unity with Christ in his death. Think about it. If you hold me underwater, I will die. Immersion or submersion underwater has the power of death. And that's the reality for the disciple of Christ. The old is dead and gone. And the coming up out of the water represents our unity with Christ and his resurrection. A believer has already been resurrected into the new person in Christ and one day will be resurrected bodily as well. Coming up out of the water helps us see and be reminded of the new creation in Christ that a disciple of Jesus is. So why do we baptize? Because God has commanded it. Because a believer is a disciple. And lastly, because it provides a positive outward expression of the unity a Christian has with Jesus in his death and resurrection. So let's look then at who baptism is for. Now, if it's not clear by now, I'll say it again. We believe that baptism is for believers. Now, I want to think about ages, okay? I want to think about ages. That's more straightforward when you're thinking about adults, okay? Hopefully, an adult has grown in wisdom and is better able to kind of count the cost of aligning themselves, of submitting themselves to Jesus, of being his disciple. And so when an adult says they are ready to be baptized, it's easier to discern how real their faith is. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean there aren't false professions from time to time, but it's easier. Now, what about those baptized as infants who now believe as adults? Should they be baptized? Again, good Christians disagree on this, but we believe that infant baptism is not the same as baptism outlined in the scriptures. So what should a believer who was baptized as an infant do? Again, this is a matter of conscience. But we would say that if you want to be baptized again, we would support that. Especially if the baptism took place in an environment of unbelief. Maybe the church, maybe your family of unbelief where the gospel was not preached, it would be wise to be baptized as a believer. But what about children and baptism? It's not uncommon that parents come to the elders asking us about baptism for their kids. How do we handle this? Parents, how should you think about this? First, let me say that we appreciate the genuineness of a child's heart. Praise the Lord for a child that says they want to be baptized They're listening. 
We don't want to question their salvation. We, we should encourage them and affirm the fruit that we see in them. And we don't want to hinder them from coming to Jesus. But let's remind ourselves of two things that I think we've established this morning. First, that water baptism does not save. And since that's true, there's, there's no rush, per se. There's no rush to baptism. Now, certainly, we want every believer to be obedient, but there's no timer. There's no expiration date on baptism. And second, since we believe baptism is for believers, we think it is better to wait for the community, the church, the community of believers, to to look for fruit. There's wisdom in waiting. I mean, think about Jesus' parables. He talks about the sower and the seed, right? The seed gets cast falls on four different types of soil. One, the bird comes and gets it right away. Three of them actually sprout a a plant of some sort. But only one of those three that that sprouts actually yields fruit. It's bad for the child in the church when we baptize in a profession of faith that isn't ready yet. A disciple is not made with one decision, but with ongoing devotion. There's testing that comes with age. And when we baptize someone, we want to be able to say like Peter that we have seen and we celebrate the tested genuineness of your faith in Christ. So it's best to wait until at least a child is no longer a child, but is a young adult. Now, there's no set age. It's not 13. It's not 18. It's not 21. Some children leave childhood behind when they're 13 or 14 years old. Some children especially boys, no offense, guys, leave it behind much later. So how do we know a child has left behind their childish ways and is ready? So parents, this is a word for you. You should be looking for signs of independence. Look for your child to make their own decisions and choose to resist the world for the sake of personal allegiance to Jesus. Said another way, when you see your child forsake things of the world for the sake of Jesus without your pressure or prompting, then you are seeing real fruit. If you want a more detailed explanation of how the elders think about baptism in children, there's copies of our statement on baptizing children on the Connect desk. And feel free to grab one on your way out this morning. For our conclusion this morning, I actually just want to take a moment and address you young people, you youth here in the front, okay? So you guys can look up from your notes. You don't need to take notes on this section. You can just look at me. I've got two things for you, okay? First one is this. I know there are some of you here this morning that have been made alive in Christ. Hallelujah. I'm so thankful for that. You've decided to follow Jesus. You decided that living for God is better than living for yourself. You've seen your need for forgiveness. You've repented of your sin and trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You are not your own. You know that you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Jesus' blood, his death. And you're even making choices that might cost you. You're more concerned with God's approval than with your parents' approval. You're more concerned with God's approval than the approval of your friends. If that's who you are, it may be time for you to consider the next step of obedience and discipleship and be baptized. And as you consider this, know that it's not about 
perfection. We're not talking about being perfect in the Lord before we're baptized. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. No one except God is perfect. So throw out that idea that you have to have it all together or figured out to be baptized. What matters is the direction of your life. Are you growing closer to Jesus? Maybe not in big ways, but in little ways. If so, I'd suggest that you consider taking the next step of obedience and allegiance to Jesus and be baptized. And so I would invite you to talk to your youth leaders, talk to me, talk to any of the elders. We would love to talk to you about what this looks like and what it means. That's my first thing. The second thing is this. I want to challenge those youth who have not yet trusted in Christ for salvation. I just want to warn you. It's possible to be around Jesus. It's possible to be around Jesus. It's possible to feel good about Jesus without actually being his disciple. Once someone uh, was talking to a great scholar. This is a little story. Once someone was talking to a great scholar, a great teacher, about uh, this younger man. And this person said, oh, so-and-so tells me that this younger man was one of your students. And the scholar answered, He may have attended my lectures, but he was not one of my students. Listen, guys, there is a world of difference between attending a lecture and being an actual student. And there's a world of difference between attending church and feeling good about Jesus and actually being his disciple. Now, I can't make you want to be a Christian. Your parents can't make you want to be a Christian. But let me just share what I know from 34 years of walking with Jesus. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. Through the highs and the lows, the successes and the failures, knowing that I am God's child, loved and accepted by Him, by faith in Jesus, what could be better? On the days when I've seen the greatest and most wondrous things, I know who to thank. And on the days when I don't think I could feel much lower, I know who to look up to for help. I can't make you submit to Christ. I can only tell you how good it has been to be one of God's disciples. I can only tell you he's worth it. And so I invite you to seriously consider taking the same step of faith for yourself. From one beggar looking for food to another beggar who's looking for food. I've found it, and his name is Jesus. Would you please stand with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning, this opportunity to reflect upon the your baptism, the opportunity to to publicly pronounce to the world, to our family, to our church, to our friends, that we are yours. We are not our own, but we were bought with a price. That price was your son, Jesus, his life, his blood. We're so thankful for that. We're so thankful that because of him now, the burden of having to figure out life on our own is gone. And you are with us and you guide us, and you love us.